Hi everyone, just before this episode starts, a quick warning. We're talking about Desperate Romantics, and in the final episode of the season, there's a representation of the death of one of the main characters. There's some historical speculation around the death of this person, and in this show we discuss the possibility that their death may have been by suicide. If this is something you're sensitive to and you want to avoid that part of the conversation, it's from 34 minutes to about 39 minutes within the show. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, my name's Alice Proctor, and welcome back to Historical Fiction. I'm very excited about this episode because we are talking about something that was a formative experience for me as a baby art historian. Um, And I'm very excited to have as my guest for today's episode, Helen Victoria Murray. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell people a bit about what you do? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Helen Victoria Murray. I am a writer, cultural critic and an academic. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on uh, contemporary depictions of pre-Raphaelite women. And I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Surrey on uh, Victorian artists as celebrity figures and how they used photography uh, to boost their celebrity. Which is so interesting and something that I would love to talk to you about in more detail. (laughs) But for the episode that we're doing today, What are we covering? Um, So we are looking at Desperate Romantics, which is a fantastic example of 2009 melodramatic biofiction trash art history. Yes, it is. This show is so trashy. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much, but it's, it's really, really trashy. So Desperate Romantics is a heavily fictionalized representation of a handful of the artists from the group known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And it follows um, a couple of these real artists as well as some fictional or composite characters to supposedly tell us a story about their lives and represent who they really were. But it plays very fast and loose with history in some very interesting ways. Absolutely. It is a a real celebrified tabloid uh, reimagining of what uh, these art historical figures uh, might have been like if they were seen through the lens of a really modern Hello Magazine style tabloid press. And that's something that the show wears quite lightly as well. Like every episode starts with the same disclaimer, which says that... um, In the mid-19th century, a group of young men challenged the art establishment of the day. The pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood were inspired by the real world around them, yet took imaginative license in their art. This story, based on their lives and loves, follows in that inventive spirit. So, like, right from the off, the show is very honest about where it's playing with the truth, which I do appreciate. I think that makes it quite an interesting thing to consider as a piece of historical fiction. Absolutely. And it kind of uh, takes this adaptational license, which is really interesting when put in the context of people's real lives and their real histories. Uh, But I think what's interesting for me is that it tries to tie it to the artworks themselves and kind of claims that this kind of 
fast and loose approach to narrative stories is in keeping with the style of pre-Raphaelite art itself, which is pretty interesting. I I think we have a similar relationship to this show in that I watched it when I was a teenager when it was first on TV. So I was like 14 years old when this was first on. And I think it did make me want to study art history in the sense that I already loved these paintings, but there was something exciting about seeing them and seeing obviously this heavily fictionalized version of the lives of the artists. But the choice to map the paintings onto the biography kind of clicked something for me and it made me more interested in art it was probably you know I spent a lot of time sitting in the pre-Raphaelite room at Tate Britain as a teenager and (laughs) this show was why. I have a really similar story about this Uh, I think I was maybe 15 or something when it came out uh, and I was similarly very seduced by all these Uh, exciting stories and beautiful visuals and I did lots of reading and research about the pre-Raphaelites I was like wow this is amazing and I uh, went into my uh, high school art classroom and declared to my teacher that I wanted to write my special essay about the pre-Raphaelites and there was a long silence and he said oh you've been watching that show But I mean, there's almost certainly there's 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 got to be like a whole generation of little baby art historians that watched this the first time around, and like now we're all really into Victorian design. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the the amazing, beautiful, frustrating curse of uh, the glut of Victorian adaptations that we have at this sort of moment in time, where you get seduced into being fascinated by these figures and the culture surrounding it. And then the more you come to know about it, the more you realise how completely inaccurate it is. And you have to kill your darlings and debunk the very thing that you first loved. (laughs) Completely. Um, So the show follows three artists and one kind of composite narrator. So we have William Holman Hunt, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and uh, John Everett Millet. And the three of them are real artists. And so we do see their real works shown through the series and the paintings are used as sort of anchor points in the biographies of these artists, which is something that I do actually really appreciate. I like that they packed in a lot of paintings into this series, but again, this idea that they're somehow living in the spirit of the artworks is, is quite interesting when the context of these artworks is so specific to these artists' lives as well. And they do play with the timelines of the show in a really significant way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really joyful and confusing, chaotic mess of a timeline on the show. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed in my Desperate Romantics rewatch is attempting to place uh, an actual historical timeline onto the events of this show, because it, it gives the impression that everything that happens within the narratives, all the sex, drugs and rock and roll, happens over the course of one, maybe two years. But when you actually map it out based on when the actual paintings that we see are exhibited, it starts in 1849 and ends in 1869. So you have a really long uh, span of time sort of all crunched together and, and really only anchored by these actual events, which you need a pretty good knowledge of art history to track. Yeah, and even 
even when you've got that sort of timeline, there are a couple of paintings that come into the show from outside that timeline. At one point, Millet shows the other artists a painting, um, which he didn't actually make until the 1880s. It shows his grandson. And so the paintings used in the story to represent the way that Millet is sort of becoming tame and establishment. And the image is, um, it's called Bubbles. It's this very famous painting of a little boy blowing soap bubbles that was later used as a soap advert. And it stands in for the way that Millet's become conventional and commercial. But they've sort of dropped it 30 years uh, out, of, out of sync with the timeline of the rest of the show in order to make this point, which is quite interesting. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the moments in the show where uh, the attempt to sort of impose a contemporary style of narrative onto this art history uh, really kind of creates a conflict because they've set Millie up to uh, act as a kind of particular character archetype. Um, someone who is youthful, someone who is a bit innocent, a bit vain, a bit of a comic foil uh, to the other characters in the show, Rosetta and Holman Hunt. Um, and it's essentially the scene that you're talking about is played for laughs because Millie has been the so-called golden boy for several episodes of the show. And when he settles down and gets married, he kind of becomes this rather more comfortable character. And it's all just played as a joke to suggest that he's uh, lost his edge and they say that the, the painting Bubbles is the most incredible shit. Uh, so it all just kind of casts Millie as this sort of slightly downtrodden comic figure. Yeah. So let's talk about who the main characters are in this series because we've got the three artists and we've got several other real life figures that sort of move in and out of the narrative around them. Um, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, sort of as we understand it historically, was much, much bigger than just these three artists. But for the sake of the narrative, these are the three that we're given to focus on. So we have Millet, we have Rossetti, and we have Holman Hunt. And their characters are played in a very strictly stylized way. Millet is played as this kind of very childish, very innocent boy throughout. And he looks very young and he's played in quite a funny way. But he never has any sort of room to grow. Holman Hunt is exhausting. He's played in this very <laughs> relentless, like very frantic way, which kind of works, but also just becomes very tiring. And Rossetti is played as just, just such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that what's fun about Desperate Romantics and it's it's kind of, trashy reworking of these quote-unquote characters is that they've taken really small details from actual events in their life and they've dialed them up to 11 to turn them into these um, character traits in a way that of course complex real life people don't really do so they take the detail that Holman Hunt is a pugilist a boxer and they make him this kind of violent uh, slightly manic character, the so-called maniac who's always threatening to, threatening to hit people, they take the sort of younger years of Dante Gabriel Rossetti where he's somewhat dynamic and uh, flirtatious and, and fascinating <laughs> and they turn him into essentially a rampant sex addict with the attention span of uh, Golden Retriever and it <laughs> is very very fun because it makes for this wonderful comedy 
but there's always that little bit of a disconnect where they're trying to marry some quite serious points about art history with this sort of uh, in-betweener style comedy. Mm, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it works as a drama, right? But one of the things I found surprising coming back to it on this rewatch is that, you know, I remember the first episode, maybe the second episode really clearly from watching it in 2009. This series is a lot longer than I remember it being. And <laughs> when I was looking it up, the viewer numbers massively dropped off after the first two or three episodes. And I think that's one of the issues that you have with a show like this one, where you're so invested in the tropes of the characters that even though you're showing really a decade or two of their lives, we never see them grow. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the show really shoots itself in the foot by attempting to have this exciting, fast-paced style of drama. It really does away with the sort of little details of character development and the sense that these figures do change over time as uh, events happen to them and and interesting uh, things happen to them, marriage, uh, children, um, family bereavements, all these things are kind of the features of the history. But in the name of keeping everything fast and exciting, so much of that development, as you say, is, is lost. Yeah, so the show starts with these three artists looking for a model. And in this, there's a kind of composite character called Fred who embodies all of the sort of hangers-on around the pre-Raphaelites. So he's their diarist, he's the sort of record keeper, he's like the straight man that runs errands for them and lends them money and that sort of thing. And he's helping them find a model. And that model turns out to be Elizabeth Siddle, who later becomes Rossetti's wife and is a very famous kind of face in a lot of the paintings of these artists. And so the narrative of the series follows from when she meets Rossetti when she meets the artists to her eventual death, which takes place in the final episode. And so for such a kind of central character, we don't see that much of her. She's really very much there as as the girlfriend. I think it's very strange what they do or attempt to do with Lizzie Siddle. They kind of, I think it comes back again to this sort of sense of reworking these historical figures in a way they think a 2009 audience will understand as rock stars and tabloid types. Um, I think one fun analogy for Lizzie and Gabriel or Siddle and Rossetti is uh, Amy Winehouse and Pete Doherty. That's Uh, a really good parallel, yeah. Because they, they sort of take this, you know, almost ingenue type approach to the character. And throughout the episodes, we see her uh, being injured and developing pneumonia as part of her posing for Millie. There's a famous story that she uh, faints in a cold bath and becomes ill and develops um, an addiction to laudanum to cope with the, the pain of those events. Uh, and it's sort of cast as this uh, way of coping with her emotional pain. Uh, but it's sort of, again, never really fully fleshed out her reasons for those emotional pains and resentments. Um, and in the name of making her a sort of a visually dramatic character with blue lips and purple shadows under her eyes, they sort of do away with the sense of, you know, what were this, what were Lizzie's goals as an artist? What were her wishes as a woman, etc.? And, you know, she's incredibly beautiful, but not always that interesting. 
Yes. And that's, I mean, that's the metaphor for the series as a whole, right? The aesthetics (laughs) of this show are fantastic, but the substance isn't always there. Like stylistically, I think there are some really interesting um, choices made in directing the show. You know, it looks it looks like one of these paintings. There are moments where you see artists um, and the characters kind of posing in a way that's really reminiscent of the paintings that they're also creating. And that's really like beautifully done. But, you know, Rossetti basically lives in this broken down greenhouse. And (laughs) it seems to be mostly like some of these choices are made purely for the style over the substance of the actual show, which does frustrate me a bit, especially when it has such an impact on the character of Lizzie at the expense of any substance. Yes, it's one of the things that I've really noticed on this rewatch of the show, that there's so many little details about people's living situations and connections that don't really make sense. Uh, The greenhouse thing is a great example of this. I believe Rossetti says that he uh, is living there without the permission of the people who own the greenhouse. And it's this, you know, unlit, unheated space covered in ivy and vines, which seems to have been produced solely for the effect of seeing beautiful Aidan Ranson and beautiful Aidan Turner against this gorgeous backdrop of leaves. But when they you are actually so dig beautiful. into it, it like, Let's be honest, they are so beautiful, but it doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah, I think it's a problem that, um, it's a problem that showrunners will run into when they're trying to adapt uh, a show about the lives of the pre-Raphaelites. Because on the one hand, you have... Um, the the lives and the irresistible urge to take sort of life writings about them and turn it into a story and then on the other hand you have the pictures which are incredibly beautiful and are a reference point for the audience because they're very famous and very recognizable but the problem with it is that you try to take the aesthetic of a static image um, and impose a narrative upon it and if it's poorly done, as it often is in Desperate Romantics, it can become a bit of a a blunt instrument. So, you know, if you watch the show with the sound off, you can think, wow, I'm watching a really beautiful (laughs) adaptation of Purathletism. And then you turn it on and there's, you know, electric guitar playing and they're walking in B formation and making dick jokes. Yeah. And you just kind of think, "This this is not what I signed on for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to talk about some of the characters that are missing or kind of misrepresented by the show firstly we don't see any of Rossetti's siblings and two of his siblings were really important to the kind of narrative around the pre-Raphaelites but we also have what is like to my mind the greatest sin of this show is the catastrophic representation of William Morris oh well William Morris and Edward Byrne Jones both are really done dirty by desperate romantics because again, in a similar vein to the way they treat Millie, they're treated as these really ridiculous comic relief characters, Tweedledum and Tweedledee in matching suits, following Rossetti around like little scared babies. Yeah. And it's just like, we never see any of their own work. We never see any of the, the things that they are producing. So we don't see Van Jones's paintings. We don't see any of Morris's work or his designs or anything like that. At one point, Rossetti sort of tries reading one of his poems, but doesn't sort of give it much space. And so we have these two figures just presented as like 
the idiots following following the others around in their horrific purple suits. And Morris is presented as kind of terrifying in that he's just very clumsy and very lacking in awareness and sort of yelling and violent. And it's intended to be for comic relief, but it's just not actually funny. It's just kind of really mean. Yes, it's it's sad. And I think, I wonder in a sense if they were attempting in the episode where uh, Morris and his sweetheart, Jane Burden are introduced. I wonder if they were intending to sort of highlight the, the decline of Rossetti in the way that he takes advantage of uh, William Morris and Jane Burden by sort of falling in love with her and manipulating him to boost his own artistic credibility. But it really just does a disservice to Morris who, you know, any art historian will tell you is one of the giants of 19th century aesthetics and culture. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they are trying to set up Rossetti's kind of, I guess, moral corruption or downfall in in that. But because of the way that Morris has been treated until that point where he's a figure of ridicule, you kind of don't really feel sorry for him. He just seems very pathetic. And, you know, the show has Rossetti really as its main character. And so it never, it's never particularly cruel to him, whereas it's quite happy to be cruel to everybody else. Yes, it, it really uh, does Morris and Burn Jones dirty. Uh, they literally make him stab himself in the hand with a fork, which I think is a very unfair thing to do. Yeah, it's just, it's just not very good. And so, so of the other people that are missing from this, um, one of the most glaring omissions to me is Christina Rossetti. Hmm. I think that this example of omitting Christina Rossetti and in fact uh, uh, Christina and Gabriel's brother William Michael Rossetti is one of the most unforgivable continuity errors in, in Desperate Romantics because both of those characters are so integral to the history of the Pre-Raphaelites and they are this sort of amazing um, family of prodigies and they very much work at that image of themselves you know there's Christina the poet uh Dante Gabriel the the poet painter William Michael the the journalist and reviewer and chronicler and those uh really intimate and close relationships are a huge part of the first years of pre-raphaelitism uh and a huge part of the the other dynamics which sort of branch off from that so by sort of setting Rossetti up as this lone wolf with no family and no connections they kind of do away with a lot of the sort of real life character development if you like that was happening behind the scenes with the brotherhood yeah so one of the ways that this is done is that one of the first paintings of Rossetti's that we see is a scene of the Annunciation um aka Ancilla Domini and in the show the model for Mary is Lizzie Siddle but in life the model was actually Christina and he changes her hair color. Christina had black hair and the painting of Mary has red hair. And so they sort of collapse it so that the redheaded Lizzie Siddle is just the model, which is really, it's disappointing. You know, it speeds up the narrative, but frankly, this narrative is so relentless that I would have liked to see more kind of space given to these characters and and to Rossetti's relationships with his siblings, because he doesn't, have any substance beyond like thinking with his dick 
And I mean, we could talk a little bit about the sort of real life biography of Dante Gabriel Rossetti and the early part of his life was not strictly reserved for thinking with his dick. You know, it's a misconception about Rossetti that he was this uh, rake and user throughout his life. He sort of begins as this rather idealistic and, and somewhat chaste young man and sort of, you know, goes down a bit of a path of dissolution over time. Um, but there's something kind of weird and, and Freudian about the way that they uh, take this, this painting, which he used his sister to model for, and really zero in on the sort of sexual attraction between Rossetti and Siddle. And there's lots of lines about how this painting has a new intensity, uh, which really sets off this narrative where uh, Rossetti believes that he can only paint if he's painting Lizzie. Um, and, you know, it, in addition to just not making continuity sense from an art historical perspective, it, as you say, it really does just set up this track so they can rock it right into this, you know, sex addict Rossetti. Yeah, so let's talk about the biographies of these actual artists, because in compressing the timeline, we're given to we're given to understand that this is an incredibly short space of time. You know, if you go purely on the show, it's like Siddle and Rossetti meet and she's dead two, three years later. But actually their relationship was a lot longer than that and a lot changes for both of them over the course of that. We also lose a lot of the detail of Millet's biography as well, particularly his relationship with um, Effie Gray Ruskin, his later wife. And with Holman Hunt, I mean, there's not much to lose because his entire personality seems to consist of um, punching things and obsessing over sex workers. But we do lose a lot of the growth and the transformation that these characters actually went through. And consequently, we don't get to explore what that might, what impact that might have had on their work. Yeah, I think that is so, so true. It's, it's always difficult when you're adapting biography or coming up with a, a biofiction, because it has to be snappy, it has to be interesting, and it has to be and it has to have the overarching sense of a narrative and a through line that goes in a direction. Um, and this is something that kind of is, this is something that we can't only blame the showrunners of Desperate Romantics for, because many of the biographies of Holman Hunt, Millie and Rossetti take this track and they almost come up with uh, a sense of the life trajectory of these artists as cultural figures. And they kind of tell it as if they're telling a story, um, which means by definition that they're partial and they're often erring on the side of what will benefit the teller, especially if the teller was personally connected to those people. But as you say, like a huge amount happens in the lives of all these artists. There's, um, you know, this really complex relationship between uh, John Milley uh, and John Ruskin, um, where they are these incredibly close friends until Milley uh, marries Ruskin's wife, Effie Gray, uh, after Effie Gray uh, sues for annulment. Um, and the complexities of the real genuine affection between Milley and Ruskin versus this conflict of uh, their mutual love for this woman is never really fleshed out because it is cast out to be um, 
a narrative about sexuality and uh, the comedy of someone innocent and someone potentially asexual. Um, the same is true for Holman Hunt, the sort of complexity for him of someone who was trying to be uh, upwardly socially mobile and learn his craft as an artist in order to attain a higher social rank versus uh, his romantic involvement with Annie Miller, uh, someone who was of a lower social class to him, although it should be said, definitely not the extremely wanton, uh, dirty sex worker that she's depicted as in the show. Um, there's a sort of, you know, a very complex social strata of, of Victorian levels of society and Victorian roles for working women, which the show is not really interested in at all <laughs> no. because they have the potential for her to pop a tit out. Yeah, I would say I I would say this show just as a whole is just not very interested in women, which is unfortunate because there are so many who would have been so interesting to talk about. But yeah. Yes, it's strange because there's so much potential for really delving into how uh, the women in the pre-Raphaelite movement felt about making art, how they felt about being models, how they felt about their roles in these men's lives over time. And it kind of, it does a very, you know, naughty's feminism thing of kind of doing a nod to it and having a lingering shot of someone's face looking pained and sad for a moment. And then it goes <laughs> right back to all the, the romping and, and sex jokes and, yeah. and fun music. And it never really quite delves deeply into things that really has potential to investigate. Yeah. So we've slightly touched on this already, but should we talk about Ruskin and how he's represented in this, particularly his relationship and the kind of breakdown of his relationship with Effie Gray, but the way that his sexuality and kind of Ruskin's spectrum of desire is represented by the show is very interesting to me. There's a lot of room left in this story. Absolutely. And I think many biofictions have this effect where they can really do the majority of their character work in the silences and the absences in biographies. And I think the example of Ruskin and Desperate Romantics is a way that this is really done well. And that's partly also down to the amazing Tom Hollander, who is a really perfect casting choice for John Ruskin and really pitches that sort of combination of um, uptight, repressed character and someone who has like a lot of deep emotional feeling under the, the surface. But it's an undercurrent of conflict throughout the show. Uh, in the first episode, he is refusing to have sex with his wife. Uh, and then throughout this leads to her annulment and remarriage to Millie. Um, and various forms of social speculation about the nature of his sexual desires and whether he might be, uh, whether he might be gay, whether he might be... Uh, asexual or whether he might even be uh, a paedophile yeah. which is um, implied in various things and in a really poignant scene in I believe it's the final episode of the series mm -hmm. there's a scene where um, Rossetti and Ruskin are having a conversation about his um, desires and Rossetti says people will speculate about this forever and I think it's just a really interesting nod to the kind of 
voyeurism of history. And we've seen that voyeurism on display all through the show in these really graphic and intense sex scenes. But these very painful looking sex scenes, I would say, like the way that these scenes are filmed actually looks like it hurts. Yes, there's so much screaming. Yeah. And you can almost understand in the context of this universe where everyone bangs it out with such aggression. <laughs> why Ruskin might want to be disinterested in his marital bed. Right. <laughs> like if like if your only options are screaming and breaking furniture or just like quite happily sleeping next to your wife with no touching at all, I can understand his choice. <laughs> Yes, and he's sort of, it's so poignant in this scene because he says, you know, he loves art and he enjoys the company of young people and um, he isn't interested in this kind of aggressive sexuality. And in the context of the show, it actually sort of makes perfect sense uh, because we've seen these life-destroying intrigues and these Mm -hmm. really damaging distractions from the careers of these artists and he's absolutely right you know people will speculate about Ruskin's sexuality forever because it was a matter of um, public speculation during his own lifetime um, so this is sort of a moment which really connects with the the historical truth or the historiographical truth of sort of how we see these people and I think Tom Hollander does a great job. We stand. Yeah, he does. He does a fantastic job playing this part. And I think he is doing a lot with a script that is not necessarily very substantial. Um, mm-hmm. And the space that he gives to this question of like, what what does Ruskin want? Sort of what does Ruskin desire? And how does Ruskin feel? Is possible because he's a very good actor. But mm-hmm. the show does also allow some room for that. You know, the fact that they're having this conversation, they're sort of, winking at the viewer with this idea that people will speculate forever is interesting because that's not a kind of it's not a dignity that's granted to everybody in this show and I'd like to talk about the way that this show represents the death of Lizzie Siddle. Mm, absolutely um, very a very romanticized and, and tragic death on screen I think. Yeah so this is the part of the conversation where Um, we're going to be talking about the possibility that Elizabeth Siddle died by suicide and the implications of that within the narrative. Um, But there are questions in the historical narrative about how she actually died, whether it was an accidental overdose or a deliberate overdose of laudanum. In the show, it's presented as deliberate. The suggestion is that she has left a suicide note. None of the characters ever read the note. We don't know what's in it. But the presentation is that her death was deliberate, which is an interesting choice for the showrunners to make because, again, we don't have any evidence for this. We don't have any information about how she died. And they take this very clear and very explicit line. So there is a lot of historical debate about the possibility of uh, her overdose of laudanum being a suicide. Uh, At the time of her death, it was ruled as accidental Um, and over time and this is sort of where the the speculation of biography really comes into play there were so many biographies of Rossetti and Siddle written around the time of her death and while Rossetti was still alive where these biographers are situating themselves in the narrative and, and placing them in place and this is where 
uh, speculation and rumor and word of mouth come into play. So there is uh, a narrative that there was a suicide note which uh, Elizabeth Siddle left uh, and which was burned at the scene. But there's absolutely uh, no proof of that apart from this uh, aspect of hearsay. But what happens over time with these many, many biographies and life writings is that this is a story which is reinterpreted in the culture and it takes on all these additional dimensions as person after person writes her story. I think it's interesting to compare uh, Elizabeth to someone like Sylvia Plath, who is set up in our culture now as a tragic heroine uh, because of her suicide. Now, of course, that is a matter of historical record, but mm. all the sort of fetishization of her story, fetishization of her perceived tragedy um, has kind of become cultural currency. And this is something which definitely is set up in Elizabeth Siddle as a character archetype. And there are lots of different adaptations of the pre-Raphaelites on screen um, and in novels. And they all tend towards this direction of, of showing Elizabeth Siddle as someone who is very mysterious, very haunted and very tragic. So this was a definite choice. Yeah, I think this is this is such a familiar narrative, particularly for the representation of women in art and of um, women who are in relationships with artists. I mean, you brought out the Sylvia Plath comparison. The one that I immediately go to is an artist like Anna Mendieta, where after her death, her entire career is recast in light of the way that she dies. And I think that's something that we definitely see happening with Lizzie Siddle as well, where we are constantly interpreting everything that she does and every choice that she makes, not as the actions of a woman, but as the actions of a woman about to die. And it's, it also is very much connected with the artworks which Siddle modelled for. So her um, historical reality, her as, as a, a life, is so often connected to this uh, fictional depiction of uh, Ophelia from Shakespeare's Hamlet, which is this incredibly famous painting, yeah. um, reproduced the world over and is a sort of visual watchword for feminine tragedy. Mm. Uh, one of the interesting things about sort of adapting Elizabeth Siddle for the screen uh, or for fictional narratives is that she's really often uh, depicted as ghostly in some way. And this happens in desperate romantics as well. There's this incredibly effective and emotionally affecting scene where she uh, hallucinates the figure of Ophelia stepping out of the painting to meet her. And in this sort of sinister way says to her, there's no turning back now. And there's sort of various little fantastical notes throughout the series, uh, sort of hallucinations and dreamlike effects where Siddle shows up as this sort of ghost or specter. Um, mm. And I really think that that kind of represents this idea that the real life of the woman is really haunted by all these narratives and images that are associated with her. Yes, absolutely. And so we have this, we have this kind of almost psychedelic thread running through the series. Like we've got these very bright colors and patterns and it's gaudy to look at, but mm these little moments of hallucinations and visions do keep popping up as a way of 
taking taking the series beyond reality and I kind of actually I would have liked more of that I would have loved this show to obviously it would have been a completely different beast if this had happened but to really embrace the kind of weirdness and if you're going to say that you're inspired by the inventive spirit of these artists then the least you can do is like really go hard for the frantic colors and the sort of kitschy over the top clutteredness of their paintings. I 100% agree and I think it is really telling in a way that these moments of fantasy and hallucination and over-the-top colour grading are, in a way, the moments in the show that feel most true because you're getting access to the inner lives and the inner eyes of these artists instead of all the tabloid speculation and the gossip. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing is that, you know, with a show like this, we're never going to, we're never going to get a complete picture of these artists, it's always going to be filtered through, filtered through fiction, filtered through their perception and particularly filtered through the media that surrounds them. Something that the show does quite well is that when it has a character like Ruskin popping up or um, the character of Dickens appears a couple of times, they will often speak in quotes from their own letters or articles or diaries and that sort of thing. And so there is this le a level of, um, of textual accuracy to the way that some of these characters speak, but... Mm when you're going to do this kind of, when you're embracing this sort of fluidity with fact, I think you you really have to go hard for it, right? You can't, you can't half-ass it. And the show really sits between these poles of atmosphere and accuracy, which is, I guess, the running theme of this whole podcast is where, what, what do you go for? And I wish they had gone for all out atmosphere and kind of the ambiance of the show because they don't really nail the accuracy. And so if you're not going to be accurate, you've sort of got to find something else to pin yourself to. Yes, totally. And the moments where they just delve into the art at its deepest level are the moments where you really kind of see a different and more interesting side to these characters. You know, the scenes where Rossetti is reciting his poetry to Siddle while she's asleep because he can't express how he feels yeah. about her when she's awake. The scene where um, Elizabeth's, Elizabeth Siddle's sister recites her poem, Dead Love, at her funeral. Mm. Um, the scene where Rossetti is painting Beata Beatrix in a, a frenzy uh, of grief and he says, why couldn't I love her with this intensity when she was alive? These are real running themes of the biographies of these characters, real running themes of the stories of their lives. And they feel much more true to us for that reason I think because it brings together the story and the artwork which at the end of the day is the purpose of adapting life writing. Yeah absolutely. So that kind of brings us on to the main thing I wanted to ask you is really like what does this show get right and I think we both agree that it's these moments of atmosphere and kind of creative anachronism but what would what would, if you were given free reign to create your own version of Desperate Romantics or, or something similar to it, like what would you focus on? Where would you put your energy? I think I would put my energy into uh, imagining the gaps in the narrative. And in a sense, I would be really interested to lean on the ambiguities much harder than this show does. Yeah, It really falls into a trap of, 
editorializing things. And part of that is because of the characterization um, and the, the sense that this has to have a rattling pace. But I'd be really interested in having a much more meditative and emotionally intimate expression of, of these artists and their artwork. Because it's one of the kind of fascinations about the Brotherhood over and above their art is that there are all these really tender emotional interactions between different people in a social network and how they inspire each other and how they influence each other. And it's a lot more complex than just um, having these stock characters fulfilling a narrative role. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the characters in Desperate Romantics seem to spend a lot of time together in the same bar, but we never actually see them as friends. We only ever see them as as tropes that are playing off each other. And that's something that I think we're missing. We don't have any, with any sort of artist's biography or any sort of biography of historical figures, we're really walking this very fine line between hagiography and truth. And I think it's hard, but worthwhile for showrunners and writers creating these pieces to try and humanize the characters which is something that I don't think Desperate Romantics does. I don't think anyone comes out of this show looking like a human. No, that's very true. They, they're designed in this show, I think, to match archetypes that are pre-received. Yeah. And those archetypes don't necessarily line up with the biographies. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how they're caricatured, but could you can you tell us about how the sort of press conception of the pre-Raphaelites in their time differs from the 2009-ness of this show because we've described Desperate Romantics as being very tabloidy, but how is that different to the reality? Um, well, this is a really interesting question, I think, because we touched on the character of Fred Walters, this uh, comic foil, uh, who is a total fictional composite. Um, kind of used to be the audience's lens into this new historical world. And the problem I always think with Fred Walters, it's not that there's no historical analogue for him, it's that there's too many. So he's the combination of a few different people. He's a combination of F.G. Stevens, who was a chronicler for the Brotherhood, William Allingham, Walter Deverell, many, many other people. And all of these figures were... um, so-called men of letters who were correspondent with various papers and journals. They were reviewers, they were biographers, um, and they uh, had this vested interest in uh, participation in the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood um, as a mutually fulfilling endeavor. So by sharing these artworks and these great men, quote unquote, with mm-hmm. the public, they were edifying the public um, and they were also promoting these figures and through their own connections, promoting themselves. But the sense of how we look at celebrity in the Victorian era is quite a bit more complicated than the strange front page news tabloid perspective that we see in the show. Mm. So in all likelihood, there was no conception of the so-called relegating the Crimean War to page five. (laughs) It's sort of very separate sphere where people are not so much interested in a publication sense in uh, the shock and intrigue of people's romantic and sexual lives. They're interested in what the artwork is showing and what it's telling telling us about the artists and their contribution to this great pantheon of art. 
because while they touch on all the debates about the art world in the show, it's always kind of secondary to these intrigues, I think. And in reality, in the journalism of that time, it was these um, interests in high art and artists as representatives of the high art that was the main focus. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the splashiness of this show is abundantly clear, particularly when they hand they hand um, they hand Ruskin an invitation to their exhibition and it's like this completely trashy DIY flyer <laughs> where they've like yeah. cut letters out and it's glued like, them onto a piece of paper. The cover. It is. <laughs> and I can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that you know the pre-Raphaelites were the punks of the Victorian era, but like you don't need to say that. Mm. It, it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah and it's, it's just yeah. trying to sort of show them as angry young men mm, mm-hmm. I think and I didn't know this and this is something that you told me that the the director of Desperate Romantics was better known for making skins right yeah he Paul Gray was uh better known as the director of skins which explains a lot about what's going on in this show definitely it's it's the same sort of core themes of skins in a way it kind of is Victorian <laughs> skins it's you know this sexy ensemble cast filled with partying and debauchery and, and montage scenes of drunkenness and drug use paired with this kind of heartfelt emotional core and this this feeling mm. of coming of age yeah absolutely and and you know tragic pretty girls which absolutely. is what we all want from our mid-2000s pop culture apparently and they I mean it just is so gorgeous to look at I mean the costumes are inaccurate some of the set dressing is outright weird but when they're you know walking around with their hair anachronistically loose it just looks (laughs) absolutely stunning it's beautiful and I wish that beauty went a little beyond the surface Mm -hmm. so is there anything that you think we've missed? Is there anything that you want to come back to from the show or? No, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground here and we've, cool. we've really set it to rights. I would love one day for us to make our own desperate romantics. I would love that so much. <laughs> Honestly, my, my goal in life is to just improve the quality of um, costume drama. That is a worthy goal and I support it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, are there any other representations of the pre-Raphaelites that you would recommend? I know there have been quite a few films recently. Um, there was a film a couple of years ago specifically about Effie Gray. Um, so I think one of the, the better known adaptations, which is also from the BBC from the 1970s, is a show called The Love School, which uh, by all accounts is a much more historically accurate and emotionally nuanced depiction of the brotherhood and their relationships. My pet favourite, because I'm interested in that inner life and that emotional intensity, is a Ken Russell film from the 1960s called Dante's Inferno, uh, which casts a young Oliver Reed as Rossetti and is full (laughs) of 1960s psychedelia complete madness um, and some really really interesting sort of 1960s meets 19th century stuff that is 
a hell of a lot of fun. Okay, incredible. Um, thank you for that recommendation. Maybe we'll have to come back and do another episode on on Dante's Inferno. <laughs> oh my god, please invite me back because okay. that would be my life. I would love to do that. Um, and if people are interested in finding out more about the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, are there any other recommendations? Like last year or the year before, there was an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery specifically about the women associated that was called the Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood, which I think covered a lot of the figures that are missing from this story, but was still very much a wives and girlfriends kind of narrative. It was, but one of the strengths of that exhibition, I think, was that it really showed just how broad the pre-Raphaelite circle was and how many overlooked historical figures uh, were actually present in that narrative who Mm. we don't really see in Desperate Romantics or a lot of other shows, to be honest. So I would really recommend uh, checking out the catalogue from the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters exhibition. And that exhibition was curated by Jan Marsh, who's always a great place to start if you're interested in Pre-Raphaelite history. Um, I would also recommend uh, Diana Rowe's biography of the Rossetti family, which is called The Rossettis in Wonderland, and (laughs) really gives a sense of that interesting and intimate circle and how integral the Rossetti family really was to the pre-Raphaelites so that would be a great place to start as well. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I am Helen V Murray on Twitter and I'm Helen V Murray on Instagram. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this and you know for giving me an excuse to rewatch Desperate Romantics it's a bit of a comfort watch for me I've I've rewatched it a couple of times since it first came out it is such glorious trash and it is always a delight for me to grab some popcorn and revisit. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's it. If you want to find the show on Twitter, it's History Friction. Um, I'm on Patreon as Historical Friction if you want to support the show. And you can find me on Twitter as AA Proctor or on Instagram as Alice A. Proctor. Thank you. Um, And we'll be back soon with more terrible trash. But in the meantime, I think Desperate Romantics is a really solid recommendation for coming into winter and looking for something to brighten or confuse your daily life. (laughs) 